Hello and welcome to episode 196 of the non-award winning or even nominated UK true crime podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story is from North London and covers the craze, family loyalty and the most grotesque human suffering and violence it is possible to imagine. Before we begin, as always, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That is Lula Bell, Andy Parrish, Caroline King, Linda Papaz, and David Beckwith. It's great to have you all aboard, and thank you so much for your support. If you haven't joined the fun yet, come and join the party at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. Also, a quick shout out to some of my big supporters on Twitter. Alexandra, for saying such nice things recently, and Ian Bitdead, who always offers me and other independent true crime podcasters such amazing support. Shame he supports Man United, but we all have flaws, right? And finally, a hi to long-term supporter Lee Adams, who's recently started a podcast about how football is key to saving men's lives. Please take a listen. So sit and talk MMH, that stands for Men's Mental Health. I'm delighted that this episode is again sponsored by Wooga, the creator of June's Journey. Have you played it yet? Released almost three years ago, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game set in the 1920s, with over 3 million active fans all around the world, including me. I love it as a game as it's challenging but relaxing, and I love the beautiful handcrafted, colourful detail of the game. If, like me, you are stylish and love the style of the 1920s, you will love it. And even if not, the detective in you will not be able to stop playing as you take on the role of June, who returns home to her family's estate only to find her sister murdered, leading to a global quest to solve the crime. This is a free-to-download mobile game available for free on mobile devices and on desktop through Amazon and Facebook. Come and join me and all the other players today. Download June's Journey for free from the App Store or Google Play, or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Now it's time to guess the month and year for when the events we're going to talk about today happened. Number one in the UK was Now You're Gone by Bass Hunter, featuring DJ Mental Theo. Was that the first dance at your wedding, I wonder? <laughs> In the US, Flo Rida's first US number one, Low, was at the top of the charts for 10 weeks. And in Australia, the top album was Leona Lewis with Spirit. In the news this month, a major tornado outbreak across the southern United States left at least 58 people dead, the highest number since the May 31st 1985 outbreak that killed 88 people. Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd made an apology to the Indigenous Australians and the Stolen Generations. Kosovo declared independence from Serbia, and it was a busy month in UK true crime news, with a jury at Ipswich Crown Court finding 49-year-old Steve Wright guilty of murdering five women during late 2006. Also, 37-year-old Mark Dixie was found guilty of the September 2005 murder of 18-year-old Sally Ann Bauman and 38-year-old Levi Belfield was found guilty of murdering two women in London in sexually motivated attacks. He received a life sentence with a recommendation that he should never be released. And good riddance to him, quite frankly. So did you get the month and year? It was February 
2008. Let's get to today's story. Ickleford is a large village on the Hertfordshire-Bedfordshire border, near the A1 and about 40 miles north of London. It's a quiet rural area, probably best known as the burial place of Henry Boswell, the so-called King of the Gypsies, who died in 1760. It isn't the sort of place we would associate with murder. But the local newspaper on the 16th of March 2008 told readers about the gruesome discovery of a headless body in Ickleford. The body, which also had had its hands removed, was found by a member of the public in undergrowth near garages. Hart's police quickly confirmed it was the body of 42-year-old scrap dealer John Finney from Northall near Potter's Bar, who'd been missing for two weeks. The post-mortem wasn't able to confirm a clear cause of death, but it did show that the decapitation occurred after death and that John Finney's hands had been removed by clean incision and that also his buttocks had been slashed with a sharp-bladed tool such as a knife. When he was found, his body was in a limited state of decomposition, which suggested that his body had not been around the garages for any length of time, but had been in dry refrigeration or even freezing. Where had it been stored between his disappearance and the discovery of the body? Detectives were soon able to find out that John, who was a traveller and a father of four, had been forcibly abducted and bundled into a van as he arrived back at his caravan at Park Farm on the 29th of February. John's Mitsubishi Pajero was recovered where he lived at Park Farm, with its windows smashed and John's mobile had been left on the passenger seat. And a blue van, which detectives believed had been used to abduct John, was recovered in nearby Wheathampstead. It had been torched, but within the burnt-out remains were steel toe caps and John's keys to his lorry. Detectives immediately suspected that for someone to be killed in this way, they were likely to be looking for professional criminals. It looked very much like a refined operation. But who would have wanted John dead so badly that they would murder him, and in such a horrendous fashion? John had used his truck a few weeks earlier to help tow another vehicle out of a mud-filled ditch at the farm. But it transpired that this other vehicle had contained a large amount of drugs which went missing at the same time. The finger of suspicion fell firmly on John Finney, although he adamantly protested his innocence. One person who knew John well, as she regularly went to the area where his caravan was to tend to her three horses, told detectives that she was shocked, as John was a really friendly person. She said that whenever they met at the farm they would talk about their horses, and passed the time of day. But she recalled clearly the events of Saturday the 9th of February, when he pulled into the farmyard in his lorry, and got out still talking on his mobile phone. She clearly recalled that he appeared to be a bit agitated, and a bit upset, and his voice was raised. She heard him say, It weren't me, I never said that. Tell them to come and see me, I'm not frightened. She said that as he spoke, she could see that his fist was clenched. And John's partner, seafood stallholder Mandy Vineal, told detectives that John had received threats 
before he'd been abducted, she said. He said he was getting calls from a withheld number, saying they wanted their gear back. He assumed that they was talking about drugs. He didn't know what they was talking about. Mary told her she had been with John when he had taken one phone call, making direct threats to him. She said, I never overheard anything, but John was saying, Come down, bring baseball bats, whatever you want. And whoever was on the phone said, We won't be bringing baseball bats. We'll be putting a lump of lead in you. And there were more death threats with a mystery caller demanding the gear and warning again about this lump of lead that would be put in him and saying that he would end up in a box. Then on the 1st of February, shots were fired near his home in a clear bid to intimidate John. But it turned out that the drug dealers who thought that John had stolen drugs weren't the only people threatening him. Mandy told detectives how John's family didn't approve of their relationship, which had started after his marriage of 20 years had ended. She explained that in the travelling community, there was widespread disapproval about marriages breaking down, especially when there were children involved, and John had four children. And in one phone call, John's own son had said that he would kill his dad, and then when he was dead, he would cut Mary's throat too. So was it potentially a member of John's own family who'd arranged for John to be killed? Surely not. Detectives finally got a break when the calls made to John making threats were linked to 24-year-old Joseph Jones from Barnet, North London. Joseph was the grandson of Charlie Cray, who, as you probably know, was the elder brother of gangster twins Ronnie and Reggie. He was widely regarded as the quieter one of the brothers, who died aged 73, while serving a 12-year sentence for his part in a drugs plot. And Joseph's dad was Charlie's son-in-law. He was 50-year-old Norman Jones from Highgate, North London, who had made a lot of money to fund a very comfortable lifestyle. He claimed that he'd made his estimated £7 million fortune through horse racing and property development, but detectives clearly suspected that some of his money had been made actually through crime. He was well known to the police with 16 previous convictions dating back to the 1990s. It was very clear from their investigations that Norman absolutely adored his son. One woman who went to school with Joseph recalled him receiving a sports car when he passed his driving test. He turned up in a sick form in a brand new convertible. His dad had bought him, she said. And another person told how Norman tried to help his son to build a business, saying he bought him a car wash. Joe was the boss and employed staff, but it didn't last long. He just wasn't interested. Detectives believed they were joined by two others in the plot. 28-year-old Mark Curran, who ran a business buying and selling cars from Park Farm. Detectives found that he had contacted estate agents to secure an industrial unit far away from prying ears, where John Finney could be taken and tortured. As someone who worked at Park Farm selling and buying cars, he was also seen as the inside man there, who could keep eyes on John Finney at all times. Detectives started to piece together events. The gang that had kidnapped John had taken almost every step needed to cover their tracks, but they hadn't done quite enough. 
The night before he was taken, they rehearsed what they were going to do, and experts were able to find details of the so-called progress phone calls passing between mobile phones, including so-called dirty phones belonging to the members of the gang. And the next evening, after they'd bundled him into the van at gunpoint, they drove him 30 miles to a business unit in Hitchin, where he was interrogated, tortured and killed. More than likely with a single shot through the head on the evening of his kidnap. It, what is clear is that his last hours alive must have been absolutely terrifying. The Joneses cleaned the unit themselves and then hired industrial cleaners to have the industrial unit cleaned twice again. But it still wasn't enough and forensic experts were able to find spots of John Finney's blood on a wall. The net was closing in. And being very aware of this, Joseph Jones and his girlfriend escaped to Malaga in Spain on the 8th of March, closely followed by Norman Jones on the 11th of March. But detectives received information from sources about their whereabouts, tracked them down, and they were arrested in Marbella on the 1st of May 2008. When arrested, Joseph Jones admitted making money by selling cannabis and told detectives he was in Stevenage collecting drugs on the night of John Finney's abduction and after that he'd been playing poker. His dad, Norman, denied ever even meeting John Finney. At the trial at St Albans Crown Court, 28-year-old Mark Curran, 50-year-old Norman Jones, his son, 23-year-old Joseph Jones, and 40-year-old Gary Lattimore, all denied murder. The jury were told that Norman and Joseph Jones were the prime leaders in the plot, but that Curran and Lattimore aided and abetted them. Opening the case for the prosecution, William Harbage QC said the following, The motivation behind Finney's abduction and murder appears to be that his attackers believed he had, or had had, possession of something that belonged to them, which he should not have had. It's clear he'd seriously upset some thoroughly unscrupulous and ruthless people. In short, this was a callous, cold-blooded and premeditated execution of a man against whom they bore a grudge. It was a carefully thought-out plan, as carefully thought-out to escape detection as it was to carry out the murder. They did everything they possibly could to cover their tracks, but as you were here, it was not enough. And after the evidence had been heard, the jury of six women and six men left to consider their verdicts. On their return, Joseph and Norman Jones were both found guilty of murder. The other two alleged gang members, Mark Curran and Gary Lattimore, were both cleared of any charges. Joseph Jones cried and held his head in his hands as he was convicted of the brutal killing. There was uproar in the packed public gallery as several women burst into tears. One screamed, I love you so much, I love you, and it's not fair, it's not fair, he didn't do it, as she was led from the courtroom. Before they were both sentenced for murder, Norman Jones had asked the judge to administer mercy to Joseph, claiming that he was only concerned for his son. But the judge was in no mood for mercy, as he jailed Norman Jones for a minimum of 33 years and his son for a minimum of 30 years. The judge said to them, You are both evil men with nothing to commend you. You committed a meticulously planned murder. You decided summarily to execute a man 
who you thought, rightly or wrongly, probably wrongly, had crossed you. It is difficult to comprehend just how evil you are. You lack any semblance of humanity. He said he was close to tears after reading a family impact statement from the murdered man's father. He added, You have subjected the Finney family to unimaginable grief, the loss of a proper man, and a man of real worth. Police believe that a fifth person also took part in the murder, but they were never identified. John Finney's head and hands were also never found. Speaking after the verdict, John's family said, The past year has been so very hard for us as a family. We've had to try to understand why a loving son and father was taken from us in such a brutal way and come to terms with such immense loss in our lives. We've been helped by the support shown by many kind-hearted people around us and we would like to thank them. But nothing can replace John and he will continue to remain so very much in our thoughts and prayers. The detective leading the investigation said, John was a victim of a calculated and pre-planned savage attack. We will never fully understand the motive for such brutality and only those individuals responsible for John's death will know exactly what happened to him. John was a well-known and respected member of the travelling community and his death has had a profound impact. I'm extremely grateful for their support and cooperation over the last year and for respecting the investigation. Despite losing an appeal in 2012, Norman Jones insisted he was innocent, pointing out that some of the evidence used by the prosecution was unreliable. In court, it was noted that his Range Rover Sport was seen on CCTV near where the body was found in Hitchin. It has since been accepted that his Range Rover did not move from his gated flat in Barnet, North London. And calls from a pay-as-you-go phone were also said to be made by him near the murder scene. He denied this. But despite engaging some of the best legal teams that money can buy, both Norman and his son are still in prison today. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Firstly, what a terrible way for John Finney to die. We talk a lot on this podcast about the absolute terror that some of the victims of the crimes we discuss must face in their final moments on this earth and I would suggest that none more so than here. Being bundled away to be interrogated must be horrendous in itself, but surely you would still hope that you would survive whatever was going to happen to you. It must be that moment when you realise that you are not going to be allowed to leave. It must be such a terrible one, especially in the midst of suffering the most awful torture, don't you think? Our thoughts, of course, go out to John's friends and family, for having to go through this terrible ordeal, hear all the information about what happened to him, and no doubt relive in their mind just what did happen time and time again. Incidentally, detectives later commented that they believed that John had not taken the drugs he was accused of stealing, which ultimately cost him his life. I wonder who did, and I wonder how they feel about the later events. Finally, I should reiterate that Norman Jones was adamant that this was a miscarriage of justice and as many friends and supporters who share this view, believing he was fitted up because of who he was. Shortly after John Finney's death, a man committed suicide and Norman's supporters believe that this was the man responsible for the murder. But it's now been 12 years since the convictions 
and Norman and his son are both still in prison. For any father, whatever the circumstances, seeing their son they adore, losing so much of his youth behind bars must be a really terrible thing. So although many of you would of course disagree, I do have some sympathy there. I wonder if you do too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK true crime, come and join the conversation on the UK True Crime Facebook group. It has to be wasting time on the mail online, right? Let's face it, not much doesn't. And to listen to bonus episodes and all the behind the scenes stuff from the 37th most popular true crime podcast and help me keep producing the show weekly, support me please on Patreon. Do it today and then you can watch me record next week's show live on Monday evening. What more could you possibly want? Just head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. So that's all for me for today. Thank you again for taking the time to join me. But just like a particularly nasty stomach upset, it has to end eventually. And, and um, yeah, <laughs> that is now. Anyway, on that medical bombshell, take it easy. And despite all the others, do stay classy. Cheerio.